Let's pray together. Your grace is indeed amazing, our Lord. We praise you. We don't deserve anything from you other than your wrath. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that when you came, you took our wrath for us. You died in our place. John saw you as the slain lamb, but standing around the throne. Lord, we don't understand it, but we embrace it. We praise you. Help us, Lord, to look to you. Lord, today as we wait upon you, as we open up this word, this precious word, Deuteronomy, we ask God that you would help us understand, help us, Lord, to apply it, help us, Lord, to live it. Because, Lord, this is what you want from us. You want us to know you, you want us to know your word, and you want us to live it out, that we might become like you, and we might show a good witness, a good testimony to the world that so desperately needs So, Lord, we're asking that you would equip us today to do just that. In Jesus' name. Well, as we get started this morning, I just want to say that uh, as I prepared for this message, the Lord has hit me very, very hard. (laughs) I just put it that way. And um, it was a very emotional thing for me this week. And so if I get emotional, um, pardon me. And just pray that God enables me to get it out to you to communicate. Uh, what he would have you to hear today. But as we get started this morning, I have an invitation and also an announcement. And uh, my invitation is for just a couple of you to very briefly share one thing that you've appreciated in our study of Deuteronomy so far. So we don't want to take up a lot of time. I don't want to drag this out. But if you have something that you would like to share with us today about what Deuteronomy meant to you, the truth of what Deuteronomy is about, just like for you to share that. So I'll give you a minute or two to think about that while I tell you my announcement. And the announcement is today we've come to the end of the Torah. See, when we finish up chapter 30 today, it marks the end of Moses teaching Israel the ways of the Lord. Can you believe that? It's been a long journey. We began this journey in July of 2021. The rest of Deuteronomy is important, though, so don't tune it out. We're going to see how the Lord deals with Joshua and Moses in their peaceful transfer of leadership. We will hear Moses' swan song right before he bids the people farewell and then turns and follows the Lord to Mount Nebo, where the Lord gives Moses a vision of the land of promise that he's not allowed to go into. And then as Israel's pastor, their leader, he falls asleep or he will wait for the resurrection of the righteous. So that's the rest of Deuteronomy. But today is the end of Moses' official teaching of the Torah. Now, the Lord has used this all-important book in my life to make a deep impression in my heart. He's changed me in ways that I'm sure I will never fully grasp, at least on this side of eternity. And for me, the biggest thing is to discover in in such a big way how Deuteronomy is, is how little difference there is between the Old Testament and the New Testament when it comes to how the Lord reveals himself to his people. See, Yahweh revealed his love and grace and mercy and holiness and power and wisdom and so much more in Deuteronomy. Can I get a witness on that? And in the New Testament, what do we find? (laughs) The Lord has revealed his love, his grace, his mercy, his power, his holiness and wisdom and so much more. And you know, we should expect that because Yahweh commuted his ways to his people in the Old Testament. And Yahweh in the flesh, 
the Lord Jesus communicated his ways to his people in the New Testament. Isn't that true? So now, what about you? Let's just hear a couple of you briefly share with us how Deuteronomy has impacted your life, if you want to share. Just very briefly, does anybody want to share anything about what Deuteronomy has meant to them so far? Obedience. Absolutely obedience. Yes. Greg. So God said that he would make himself known to the world through Israel. And and so the, the thing that I've come to learn is you've talked many times about this this suzerain contract mm. and the way that earthly kings related to the rest of their subjects and that that would be the the most obvious doctrine for the rest of the world to to come to understand who God really is mm. amen as as the king of all creation amen amen good good point one more liam i was just going to say like especially through Deuteronomy, but through like just all of the Old Testament, just how many times God like tells his people what they deserve and what they should have, and then tells them that I will spare your life so that you will know me. And just like there's such a, oh, there's no, um, even, the, even though there's like the theory now, it's like there is no difference between the grace of God and the Old and New Testament. Like Amen. he's still the same merciful and loving and caring God that he um, portrays through Jesus. So. Amen. Amen. Good word. Good word. We think of the Old Testament God as full of wrath and anger, and you, you make one wrong move and he zaps you out of existence. Uh, wrong answer. <laughs> wrong answer. So I, I appreciate what you guys have shared, but but it's my prayer today as we go through our passage for today, Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 20. And so if you don't have it open yet, please open up your Bibles to that. Is that we will, in a very profound way, fully embrace one eternal truth, that the Lord is the life of his people. Not that the Lord gives life, though he does. And not even that the Lord is life, which he is. But that the Lord is the life of his people. So I'm convinced that everything that Moses taught in this book has led up to this point with him speaking this eternal truth to Israel. The Lord is your life. And throughout these chapters, up into including our passage for today, Moses does a masterful job at unpacking the statement in verse 20. The Lord is your life. If I can use this analogy, Moses painted the Lord, life himself, in the colors of an exquisite revelation of his character vastly different than his people. The difference between himself and the people highlighted Israel's need for the Lord's commands. These commands reveal only some of the ways of Yahweh. See, for after all, God is infinite in all of his perfections. There is no way for anybody to fully comprehend him. And as we saw over and over again in Deuteronomy, these commands were not used as some sort of a Damocles sword hanging over the head of every individual Israelite. The foundation of Yahweh's revelation of his ways rests in the fact that he delivered Israel from Egypt. Why? Because he was faithful to keep the promise he made to Abraham centuries earlier. And so we see the Lord's goodness here. We see his power, his faithfulness, and his right to tell his people what to do. And as we know, Deuteronomy is not only a revelation of the Lord's character, 
This book also gives the grievous details of who Israel is. They're rebellious and they're stubborn toward the one who loves and cares for them. So even here we see yet another revelation of the Lord. It says patience and his mercy toward Israel who often went astray. And because of who Yahweh is, he continues to woo his people to himself. He asks his people to give him their wholehearted loyalty and devotion. And as a perfect capstone of all he revealed, Yahweh through Moses tells his people one unforgettable truth. The Lord is your life. As I mentioned, our passage for today is Deuteronomy 30, 11 to 20. It's found in page 191 in the Pew Bible, if you need that number. But let me give you the lay of the land in our time together in God's Word today. I'm going to introduce these sections up front, and then I'm going to you know, give a little bit of detail uh, later on down the line. So in verses 11 to 14, we're going to discover Moses giving his people an apparent contradiction, leading up to the awesome reality that the Lord is indeed their life. See, Moses tells Israel, This commandment, this Torah in its totality that I give you today is not too hard for you. Interesting, isn't it? See, it seems we have a real problem here. Because I can't tell you how many people I've heard tell me over the years that the Lord gave humanity the law to show us that we need his grace because we can't keep his law. That's why Christ came. That's why we need him, because we can't keep his law. But what did Moses just tell his people? John Calvin wrote in his commentary on Deuteronomy, the law requires a perfect righteousness. But then Calvin goes on and seems to say something like this, that God somehow changed the way he treated his people in the Old Testament versus the New Testament. Calvin writes this in this very same comment in Deuteronomy. It is necessary to come to the gospel in which the requirements of the law is relaxed. Because the Lord pardoned us, it is now our willingness to obey him that is pleasing to the Lord instead of perfect obedience. There's a little bit of a disconnect here, it looks like. Makes one go, hmm. So it seems kind of strange that the Lord would somehow relax things when it comes to people living out his law, regardless of the era. See, what in the world does Moses mean here when he says you can do this? Can Israel really keep the law, contrary to Calvin? Can they really obey the Torah? There's a simple answer, I'm convinced, and I'll share that a little bit later. And it is amazingly a simple answer. But in verses 15 to 19, we're going to hear Moses make a cosmic announcement where he calls heaven and earth to witness the Lord, setting before his people a choice. Will they choose life or will they choose death? If they choose life, they will live. If they refuse, they will perish. They, as God's chosen people, get to choose their own destiny. See, this is an incredible, perfect demonstration of the dignity and the worth he has given to everyone. See, God offers, he instructs, he warns, he encourages, but he grants us freedom as his imagers to enter into a relationship with him or to refuse it. I believe it was C.S. Lewis who said that he went kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. 
and that he was the most reluctant convert to Christianity that there was. Well, I get it that these were his words. This is his testimony. No one can argue with one's personal experience, asked Joseph Smith. But I beg to differ with our beloved C.S. Lewis because of the Lord's greater testimony. He does not force us to love him, does he? He does not drag us into his kingdom kicking and screaming, Mr. Lewis. He does not coerce us to follow him. He does not force eternal life upon us if we don't want it. We have a choice. And today we will see not only Yahweh, but Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord Jesus, expressed the exact same thing. Finally, verse 20, we will see the awesome reality. Truly, the Lord was Israel's life. And fast forward thousands of years, we're going to see the same thing in the New Testament. Truly, Jesus is our life. We will see how we can live out this vital truth as we behold him like Israel beheld the Lord in Moses' day. So let's dive into verses 11 to 14 of Deuteronomy chapter 30. For this commandment I give to you that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. (laughs) Did you catch the repeated phrases and ideas in these verses? Moses tells him several times, the command is not too hard for you. Hear the Torah and do it. Do you think that Yahweh through Moses is emphasizing something here? So let me revisit what I mentioned just a moment ago regarding God's people being able to perform the law, the Torah. How can Moses, who gave Israel such terms of endearment as rebellious, stiff-necked, selfish, and idolatrous, turn right around and tell his people the commands of Yahweh are not too hard for you? Let me give you two brief points to clarify these things here. First, remember the overall context. And those who've been with us for a while in Deuteronomy, or if you know Deuteronomy well, you know that the Lord gave the Torah to a certain group of people, his people. He did not give the Torah to those who were not his people. Listen again, as God thundered the 10 words, the 10 commandments from the mountaintop in Exodus chapter 20, verses one and two. This is how he sets it up. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. And then he goes on and says, I give you these commands. Again, it's to his people, not to the world. So what have we here? The Lord proclaimed that he was their deliverer. He was their savior. It was by his power, his faithfulness to Abraham that he saved Israel. And then only after he delivered them, Yahweh gave them his law, his Torah. And now that the Lord delivered Israel, he gave them his Torah to show them how to live as his people. They were saved by grace. Now they're to learn how to live out his ways. It's like what Paul told the Philippians in the New Testament. He said, work out or exercise your salvation. 
So Moses is telling Israel, Yahweh's ways are not too hard to figure out. I have told you what they are plainly. The Lord's ways are practical. They're not impossible. They are close at hand. Moses says, I am the Lord's mouthpiece. The Lord gave me his ways directly from his mouth to my ear. I'm giving them from my mouth to your ear. Here again, what the Lord told the people specifically as the male heads of the home, because he commanded them specifically in Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them while you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up. The point is clear, at least I hope you see it. Give yourself to the Lord, Moses says. Love the Lord with all that you have, and then take the Lord's ways, his commandments, put them on your heart. You are to obey them and then to teach them to your family using every opportunity that you can to do this. So let me sum up my first point. These commandments were given to those who were already God's people. God's ways were not given to sinners that they might become saints. God's ways were given to saints, his set-apart people, so that they might become like the Lord in their character. See, that is accomplished as Israel learns how to love the Lord. And love then and now is spelled what? O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Spell it with me. O-B-E-D-I-E-N-C-E. Love is spelled obedience. And that leads me to the second point of clarification here. As it's been said regarding salvation, the Lord knew exactly what he was getting when he saved Israel. True? And by the way, he knew exactly what he was getting when he saved you and me too, right? As we've seen throughout our time in Deuteronomy, it's never been about flawless behavior, but it's always been about living in a loyal relationship with the Lord. And what this means, bottom line for them, is no idolatry. Full stop. This is what Moses warned the people about time and time again. The Lord forgives all manner of sin and wickedness, but the one sin he detests the most is idolatry. So why was it, though, that even when David committed adultery with Bathsheba and even arranged for the death of her husband, that the Lord still called David a man after his own heart? How could he do this? Because in short, when the prophet Nathan came to him and confronted him, what did David do? First of all, what did David not do? He did not go after other gods. What did he do? He says, I have sinned against my God, against Yahweh. And we'll see the struggle if you read two Psalms, the struggle that David had and the confession he made in Psalm 51. And then also after he confessed, he was restored again in Psalm 32. So if you read Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, you'll see these things. So the bottom line in this section is what looks like An apparent contradiction is just that. It's an apparent contradiction. Moses implored the people of God to put into practice what he taught them, knowing that they would not get it right all the time. And the Lord, by his grace and his mercy, would maintain a faithful relationship with his people. And then Israel would 
loyally pursue a relationship with him. We might want to call these verses Nike theology in a nutshell. Israel, you understand what the Lord wants you to do, and you can do it. Now, in verses 15 to 19, we find Moses giving a cosmic announcement. He wanted all heaven and earth to witness something between the Lord and his people. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, I command you this day by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you this day that you shall surely perish. You're not going to live long in the land that you're going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth today to witness against you that I have set before you life and death blessing and curse. So choose life that you and your offspring may live. Moses calls everybody and everything on the planet to witness the renewal of the treaty that Yahweh, the divine king, the suzerain is making with his vastly inferior people, his vassals, Israel. But notice what Moses calls the entire planet to witness. Yahweh is setting before his people Life, death, your choice. Israel gets to choose how they want the Lord to treat them. The one who has all the power in the universe can greatly bless his people or greatly curse them. The Lord of heaven and earth outlines what it takes for him to grant Israel life and what it takes for him to grant Israel death. So what does Yahweh describe as life? And good, rendering obedience to him. And what does that look like? How is that done? Like so many times before, Moses tells him, obedience means by definition to love the Lord. And how do his people love him? What do we say? Walk in his ways. Keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. It's a very straightforward thing, is it not? Put the commandments into practice. Live the way that the Lord would have them live. And that's what it means to love the Lord. And the benefits of loving the Lord result in his blessing them with true life, many descendants, and permanent residence in the land promise. So what do we have so far? One option the Lord gave his people, the best kind of life that any imager of God could ever have. The other option Moses lays before the people just as viable, it's their choice if they want it or not, is death and evil. Here's what Moses says about this choice. Death and evil consist of hearts turned away from the Lord. The people will refuse to hear. It's another way of saying, I will not obey the Lord. Not that I cannot obey the Lord, but I will not obey the Lord. Evil also means idolatry. See, the gods deceive the people into believing it's they who are the source of life. But actually, their ways are the ways of death, away from life, for only in Yahweh is life to be found. The options Moses sets before the people 
could not be any farther apart. Love the Lord or turn away from him. Deliberately put into practice the Lord's ways or deliberately ignore them. Live a superior quality of life, experiencing abundant blessings in the land of promise, or go after God's resulting in much death and expulsion from the land. Israel, with all creation watching you, witnessing this offer of covenant renewal, make your choice, life or death. No pressure. And now we come to the ultimate statement in this book. The capstone of all that Moses taught his people for 30 chapters. Verse 20. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. As I repeatedly said in this message, the Lord is your life, encapsulates everything Moses told Israel from Deuteronomy 1.1 all the way up to 30, verse 20. As we're going to see, this truth even applies to us today as followers of Christ, October 2nd, 2022. So let me remind us, though, of the big picture. Let's step back a little bit. Yahweh spoke all things into existence. Isn't that true? He is a source of life. Tragically, this is something that I believe we take for granted far too often, don't we? See, unless something dreadfully goes wrong, we don't have to think about breathing, do we? Or we never have to force our hearts to beat. It just does it automatically. The Lord has programmed that into us. See, we just assume that the Lord is going to continue giving us life. Now, the psalmist in Psalm 104, verses 24 to 30, gives praise to the author of all living things. So let me point out just a couple of things that the psalmist in this praise fest gives to Yahweh. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, including ours, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they're created and you renew the face of the ground. Simply put, God has created an environment of life. And so we look at Moses' conclusion in Deuteronomy 30.20. He urges Israel with everything she has to choose life, to live in his environment that they may live. For the first verse in this book of the law until now, Moses taught Israel what life is. But it is not mere biology. As I mentioned before, it is the life that Moses speaks of. It's akin to what Jesus said in John 10, 10. I've come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. It's real life. And so what is real life under Yahweh's lordship? What did Moses teach them? Well, let me just simply summarize the summary statement found in the law, the Torah, which is the Ten Commandments, Ten Words. Yahweh says, real life is living in a loyal relationship with the one who gave life to you. It is wearing the name of the Lord in such a way as to give him great honor. The Lord is worthy of praise. Therefore, take a day off per week to refresh yourself in his presence. 
Yahweh says that real life includes giving profound respect and honor to mom and dad, regardless of how old you are. If if your mom and dad are still living, give them honor. Real life respects all images of God to the place that one would not even think about giving them dehumanizing labels. Living the life of Yahweh means we cultivate the most important human relationship on the planet between us, indeed, if one is married. Yahweh's life recognizes that he has ultimately given us all that we have and that he gave neighbors everything that they have as well. We would not even entertain the thought of taking something of theirs and claiming it for our own. And speaking of my neighbor, I avoid seeking to harm his reputation at all costs. This too is real life, Yahweh's way. And finally, I rest contented with what the Lord has given me, and I am thankful for all that he's provided for me. What a way to live. This is a summary statement of the law of God. This is real life in Yahweh's environment. Now it comes together. Moses tells Israel in verse 18, if you turn away from Yahweh, the source of life, you will perish. This is obviously a warning from Yahweh to his people through Moses. But why would the Lord actually say this to his people whom he has already delivered from Egypt at this point? Throughout the book of Deuteronomy, we read about the curses for disobedience and the blessings for obedience. But if we're not careful, we can conclude that the reason God created his imagers was for them to be on their faces at his feet 24-7, 365. That he gets divine satisfaction only when people carry out his commands. But this is certainly true. The Lord is satisfied and glorified when his people worship and obey him. Would you agree? But now let's go a little bit further because I'm convinced here is really the point of Moses and really the point of the book. When God's people live out his ways, where are they in relationship to life? They're living in an environment of life, we might say. They experience real life, not mere biological existence. But what happens when people exit the environment from which they obtain life? They die. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? A fish out of water is like a case in point here. See, when a fish lives in the water, what happens to him? He lives. But let's say that this fish has the ability and the choice to leave the water behind. And the moment he does, he begins to die. The longer he's out of the water, the environment in which provides life for him the more he suffers. And if he's out of his life-giving environment long enough, he dies. Now, we've seen the Lord give stern warnings about his people turning away from him. But instead of seeing the Lord as a power-hungry deity, quote-unquote, demanding that his people stay on their faces, we need to see him more as a watchman on the wall, so to speak, where he tells his people, if you leave me, the environment in which you live, you will begin to die. You will be like a fish out of water. You cannot find life anywhere else. I am your life. Is this not, though, the human experience that we all sort of live like fish out of water? I'm talking about the the people out in the world. See, when a person refuses to live God's way, he lives a subhuman experience, doesn't he? Day after day, literally dying small degree by small degree. Let's consider just one example. Why call the unborn person in the womb a fetus? It's a dehumanizing label, isn't it? 
calling the one in the womb something less than a person. When one commits himself or herself to the idea that the entity in the womb is less than a person, then what can happen? That person can do to it whatever he or she wants. Isn't that right? But if we live in the environment life, we will affirm the fact that there is an unborn person in that womb, and therefore everything is different. We can multiply these examples over and over again, but you see the point, at least I hope you can. So we can visualize here what the Lord's environment of life looks like by using a coin. Whoever has the coin has life. And the coin looks like this. In verse 20, we see one side of the coin. Love the Lord, obey his voice. That's what's on this coin on the front side. It's another way of saying keeping his commandments. Now, we know by keeping his commandments, it shows that we love the Lord. So on one side, love the Lord, keep his commandments. On the other side of the coin, it says, hold fast to him. Hold fast. One author puts it this way. To hold fast to the Lord means to cling to him in affection and loyalty. Simply put, our life with the Lord is one where we have only eyes for him. Like Adam and Eve clung to one another. And like those in any deep, meaningful relationship, affection and loyalty are at the heart. In other words, Israel was to be thoroughly beholding their God. They were to study him. They were to be permanently enamored with Yahweh. And this coin, with obediently loving the Lord on one side and beholding your God on the other, is the currency of life itself. Whoever has this coin has life. As I've emphasized for several weeks now, Yahweh is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I've read that in the Bible somewhere before, haven't you? The transcendent Yahweh is speaking through Moses, revealing himself to Israel. And now let's turn to Yahweh in the flesh, the Lord Jesus. In Jesus, we hear the same thing regarding life. So let me walk through just a couple of truths here to let you know what I'm talking about. In John 1, 1, 1 through 4, says this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, life, and the life was the light of men. Where is Yahweh life to be found? In Jesus. John five thirty nine to 40. Jesus had an argument with the Jews about, and they were persecuting Him over a miracle that He did. He told them, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But it's these that testify of me. And you refuse to come to me that you might have what? Life. Yahweh life. See, Jesus plainly told the Jews and us by extension that life is found in beholding Christ as he's revealed in scripture. That's why we place such an emphasis on learning the Bible here. In John eleven twenty five, Jesus comforted grieving Martha, who was who had very recently lost her brother Lazarus. He told her, "I am the resurrection and the life. Yahweh life even overcomes physical death." Amen. And all who know the Lord, and all whom the Lord knows, is such a comfort to know that this life is not all there is. Yahweh will raise us from the dead in due time. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. 
that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Real life. It's available to all who believe. And here's what it means. That one looks away from that which is part of the realm of the dead and beholds Christ, the one in whom eternal life is, Yahweh life is. But what did Jesus mean when he said eternal life? John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know the Lord is the real definition of real life. Yahweh life, life itself. This is the currency of life. See, John said, or Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. It's one side of that coin, right? Remember the other side of the coin, hold fast to to him, cling to him, behold your God. The very least to behold him means that we intently look at him as if our eternal life depends on it, because it does. I got to warn us as I begin to expose this truth to our heart. We really don't want to behold our God. Because thoroughly beholding the Lord painfully humbles us. Beholding the Lord puts painful limitations on us at times, severely restricting our own desires. But how can it be that beholding our Lord is a painful, humbling thing that can often be in severely restricting us from fulfilling our desires? Let me give you two illustrations to, to... Hopefully you can you can see this. Think of Peter on the water. It's a great story, isn't it? Peter walked on top of the water. Peter and the other 11 disciples were in the boat, the Sea of Galilee, at night. Jesus was off by himself praying, or at least that's what he was doing when the disciples left. All was going well until all of a sudden, very strong winds along with the big waves prevented them from getting destination. The waves threatened to overwhelm them. And then Jesus walks on the water toward them. Imagine being one disciple. He knew exactly where they were. He had his eyes on them all the time. But they didn't know what produced more fear. Was it the waves or was it this man walking toward them? And they cried out completely. They were freaked out over Jesus walking to them. He was above the chaos. He was on top of the water. And now a voice was heard over the waves somehow. It was Peter. Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And what did Jesus say? Come on. Come on. And so Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water to Jesus. And literally as long as Peter beheld his Lord and did look away, Peter was above the chaos, as was Jesus. But the moment he got diverted and got distracted, he looked away from Jesus, began to sink into the waves. And then Peter prayed one of those desperation prayers. Lord, save me. And the Lord did. And I have no doubt that Peter clung to the Lord like his life depended on it, because it did, didn't it? Peter realized that Jesus was his life. And aren't you glad that the Lord hears desperation prayers? Now, this particular story ends with the disciples worshiping Jesus when Jesus and Peter got on the boat. 
See, they beheld the Lord and they marveled at the person and the power of Christ. And after Christ was crucified, buried, raised from the dead, there were other times the disciples beheld the Lord. One of those times was resurrection night when the Lord appeared to the disciples as he literally came through the locked door. They were scared and they were overjoyed at the same time. But at least one disciple wasn't there. Who was he? It was Thomas on that night. A week later, Jesus shows up again in their midst and Thomas was there then. The Lord showed Thomas his scars. And Thomas beheld the Lord and he answered him and he said, my Lord and my God. Well, it's been right around 2,000 years since the Lord returned to the right hand of the Father. There hasn't been a whole lot of physically beholding the Lord with one's eyes. I mean, obviously, he's not here physically, is he? But we need to behold the Lord and that beholding him still stands. It's absolutely imperative to Christians. See, in our present circumstances, as Christians, we as Christians are forcefully and are painfully reminded that we ain't home yet. We constantly battle two kinds of enemies, don't we? Ourselves and all the other gods out there. See, Jesus told us that in order to follow him, the very first obstacle to overcome is ourselves. We are to deny ourselves. Then we're to separate ourselves from all of the gods, which is depicted when we take up our cross daily. See, when someone back in the day carried his cross, he was marching in a dead man's parade because everybody knew where this man was going. They knew he was not coming back. He knew he was going there to die, and they did too. And so following Jesus was painful. It's humbling. It's not a whole lot of fun here. But we are living for this life, are we? We are living for him in the environment of an abundant Yahweh life. And so in Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Paul describes for us what the environment of Yahweh life is. So I invite you to turn with me there to Colossians 1, Colossians 3, 1 to 4. We need to see these wonderful words. So you can follow in your manuscript or you can turn scriptures. But Colossians 3, 1 to 4, Paul is talking about how wonderful it is to be part of Yahweh life. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above not all things are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So how do we seek the things that are above where Christ is? How do we behold him who is our life? We can't see him, but we can use pictures scripture paints of the Lord Jesus. John the Apostle was an old man when he had the vision of Christ. In the throne room of God, John hears a mighty angel call out, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And John begins to weep loudly because no one stepped forward. No one was worthy. But one of the elders told him to stop weeping, for there was one who was worthy. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. So John turned, expecting to see a lion of Judah, expecting to see the root of David. But what does he actually see? A lamb. 
standing as though it's been slain. What does a slain lamb look like? A gory mess. But he's standing. He's standing. What in the world is John looking at? It's been said that the only man-made things in heaven will be the scars of Jesus. The one who died a gory death is now standing. He's alive forevermore. Why did the lamb have the scars? Who put them there? We did. You did. I did. He will forever bear the scars to remind us when we get there of who we are, who he is, and how we gained access to him in the first place. Only by his grace and his sacrifice. Beholding this picture of Christ ought to deeply humble us. See, we're tempted to turn away from him because of his ugly wounds. The sight of the worthy lamb grinds our pride into the dust. And we cry out to him, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I've got to clean myself up to be presentable to you. I've got to clean up my act. Don't we do this? especially when we violate our own conscience and we feel so terrible about ourselves and we go away and we start to beat ourselves up over and over again. We say, Lord, I can't go into your presence. I can't. It's so painful to really admit that we are unworthy, isn't it? And there's absolutely nothing that we can do to clean up our act. And we realize just how bankrupt we are when we realize that we are truly unworthy. And we realize the horror, what we cause the Lord of glory. We hear him say, don't look away. Look to me. Look to me. We tell the Lord, I'm not worthy, Lord. I'm not worthy. I can't. I can't. And the Lord cuts us off. How impolite he is. He says, I know you're not worthy. Look to me. But Lord, I look to me. But. Look to me. The point is, we are not worthy. But he is. He is. May the picture of our Lord, the lamb who was slain, standing, drive home to us. I'm not worthy. Praise God. But he is. Look to Jesus. Not to ourselves. Not to get ourselves better. Not to beat ourselves up, but look to him. That's the point. We behold him. Don't look away from him. Second picture John sees is the Lord Jesus as the multi-crowned one. Revelation 19.12 says, His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. Jesus is king of kings, and he's lord of lords above all other gods. When we behold this picture of Jesus, what becomes of all the other gods trying to lure us away? The answer is obvious, isn't it? He is over all. They are at his feet. They are his footstool. So we look to him as king. We don't look to other gods. Jesus is Lord. Behold him. Don't look away. But what does that do for our desires, for other things? It's painful, isn't it? 
because we know what we like. We know what we want. But Jesus is king. He's king of kings. He's Lord of lords. And the king says to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life would save him. For what is a prophet, a man, a woman, a young person, if he gains the whole world and yet loses himself and forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. So as I close this message, may we be refreshed in the truth that the Lord is our life. Eternal life, Jesus said, is knowing God. It is knowing at a profound level that we are not worthy, but Jesus is. Jesus wears the scars. He wears the crowns. May we live for Christ crucified. He's the crucified king. May we behold him. Let's not look away from him. Let's keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of the Father because we have died and our life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. We who are not worthy are going to appear with him who is worthy. Let's pray. Lord, you are our life. And we don't look at this as just living forever. Lord, the best kind of life, the life you intended for us to live all along, you've given that to every one of us who know you and whom you know. Lord, I thank you. I praise you. And even as we talked today earlier to the Lord, Lord at the beginning of the service, we humbly acknowledge who you are and we acknowledge our own place. It's at your feet. And Lord, when we are tempted to beat ourselves up over our sin, you tell us don't look to ourselves. You tell us not to gaze at our navels. You tell us to look to you. Well, we can't clean ourselves up. So we look to you. Lord, we are tempted to turn away from you because of so many so many gods around here tempted to lure us away. But Lord, you're king. All the gods are at your feet. And we look to you. Help us, Lord. Lead us, guide us. Protect us from our own hearts, from our own minds, from our own attempts at self-salvation. Because you are worthy. I thank you, Lord, now for this time that we can turn our attention to yeah, one more time, two more acts of worship as we have our giving and as we sing the last song. Lord, may we give these things to you again as acts of worship because you alone are worthy. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done here and for what you will continue to do in our lives as a result of this message in Jesus' name.